Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Hello and welcome to Compliance Clarified, a podcast for risk and compliance professionals brought to you by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence. Each week, we discuss news stories and topical issues from our journalists and analysts in the United States, Europe, Asia, and Australia. I'm Alex Robson, and I'm Managing Editor for Regulatory Intelligence coming to you today from London. I'm speaking to Rachel Walcott, Senior Editor, also here in London. Welcome, Rachel. Hi, Alex. In this fourth episode of Season 8 of Compliance Clarified, we're going to look at KYC, Know Your Customer. Firms should re-engineer their anti-money laundering systems and controls to refocus on KYC processes to prevent an inevitable pile-up of transaction monitoring alerts. Their pivot to digital onboarding has prioritised speed over collecting enough information to determine whether transactions are suspicious, sources have told regulatory intelligence. This has created an inefficient, expensive process where AML analysts are sifting through thousands of alerts looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack. Some banks, in order to onboard customers digitally in less than 24 hours, rely on tools that verify identity based on existing information. These verification tools use customer addresses, credit bureau information, previous bank account details to risk your applicants. Some banks do not ask for photo identification, such as a driver's license or a passport for customers deemed to be low risk. Rachel, what is wrong with how firms are doing AML controls today? Well, it seems that firms are putting themselves in a, at a disadvantage when it comes to KYC. Here in the UK, at least, banks are shutting branches and eliminating the you know, person-to-person contact that provides them uh, ways of knowing their customers. <laughs> uh, so that's one one thing. And another thing is increasingly when you open a bank account, you're being onboarded remotely uh, with the minimum information collected. So this is mainly on the retail side, um, but there should be a more detailed vetting uh, for business customers. But what, with this kind of de-emphasis, or not, perhaps not de-emphasis, but you know, this remote or onboarding, that shifted the focus away from know your customer to transaction monitoring. And firms have opted uh, to search for the needle in the haystack of thousands of transaction monitoring alerts. And they're using AI to reduce reduce false positives. And they employ thousands of financial crime analysts, or so they claim, to check these monitoring alerts. But what AML experts tell me is that not only is this kind of backwards, but it's also inefficient. Um, there's a lot of friction in the um, process when you go to check the uh, alerts. If uh, your system flags up a transaction as being uh, problematic, you need to then chase up the customers to find out what they're doing Or sometimes. And this can take up to two weeks, according to a company called Refined Intelligence that I spoke to recently. That was some um, research that they had done. So the truth is that people are, are tasked with chasing up these alerts, also get bored, 
running around after what are mostly false positives so that when real concerns are escalated about a customer, the people who are then tasked with reviewing those concerns or recommending offboarding of a customer don't always follow through. And that's partly because firms' procedures to track problem clients and offboard them are poor. But we've also seen in multiple anti-money laundering fines that transaction monitoring is problematic. This was uh, something that came out in the HSBC fine, the NatWest fine in criminal prosecution, and uh, in the Santander fine. Firms do not calibrate their transaction monitoring systems properly, and they don't catch the behaviors they're supposed to. So, for example, if a customer is onboarded and say they make 40,000 pounds a year, and suddenly they're putting many times more than that through their account, we've seen firms monitoring solutions just don't pick up on that. Why are firms doing the minimum on KYC? Well, fintechs especially want to onboard clients quickly because there is an idea now that, or a belief now even, that speed is critical to opening an account. Banks want to onboard customers quickly with as little friction as possible. Some have targets to onboard within 24 hours. And this is what I call e-quick KYC and others call digital onboarding or like I was saying before, remote onboarding. Some banks, depending on the kind of account you get, can onboard you almost instantly. And that's because they're relying in some cases on another bank to have performed KYC checks. For example, if I open a savings account that only takes transactions from my current account, I don't, in in some cases, have to do any KYC checks with the bank where I've opened the savings account. They're relying on me being a low-risk customer because of an account at my main bank for many years. But banks are also using other checks to see if I'm a low-risk to speed up onboarding. They'll check my credit rating, how long I've been living at my current address, and some can even check on whether my email address has a good reputation. So that means, was my email address created yesterday? because maybe I'm a criminal or a scammer, or have I had it for a while, you know, allegedly indicating that I am a upright human being. There is other tech firms can use to weed out bad actors during the onboarding process. And this kind of tech has to do with looking at customer behavior during onboarding. So it's essentially kind of keystroke analysis Uh, whether the person uh, trying to get an account is cutting and pasting information from a list, or perhaps this is stolen personal information from a hack or bought on the dark web. And it allows firms to see how fluidly information is being typed in. So for example, If you know your U.S. Social Security number off the top of your head, you'll be able to type that in really easily. But if you're having to slowly kind of tap it in, that might suggest that you're copying it from somewhere. And it's these kinds of newer tools that allow firms to have some assurance that they are not onboarding fraudsters or criminals. But the issue remains that they 
still don't know their customers the way they used to. And people in branch, if people even exist anymore, are less likely to be able to answer questions about customers' transactions. How should firms be doing KYC? Well, there are a few schools of thought here. One is that firms should be asking more questions when they onboard customers. The thinking here is the more you know about a customer, the easier it will be to determine whether their transactions are legitimate or suspicious. Perhaps that requires a little more friction in the onboarding process, and it's unclear to me whether that is such a bad thing, meaning the more friction, especially if it helps banks protect themselves down the line and potentially reduces the amount they spend on these vast teams chasing up transaction monitoring alerts. Another approach is to use technology to model good behavior instead of only the bad. So an example here would be looking at the kinds of transactions that may be large and flag up as suspicious, but really are legitimate. And that might entail looking at uh, customer demographics, spending trends, and taking time to understand that customers often make large transactions for specific reasons like buying a house, or if you've got very generous uh, relatives, you know, a, wed a wedding gift. So the idea is that you're knowing your customers better based on their day-to-day -day transactions and behaviors. And in the event something does look anomalous, there is probably a good explanation. And here experts recommend contacting the customer using an app or a text uh, instead of you know, having a, someone from a branch call them because people tend to respond more quickly to a technology-based intervention. Of course, another school of thought is to keep just doing things the way you've been always been doing them with transaction monitoring and alert checking. But I alluded to budgets earlier. Budgets are under pressure everywhere, um, including in financial institutions. So you'd wonder how such a costly approach is going to be sustainable. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover to the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. The U.K. has done a lot of work on sanctions uh, in conjunction with the U.S., the, probably the, the lead players uh, and, and the European Union. That's a, a vital part of KYC uh, compliance. What has the Financial Conduct Authority been doing to check firms' standards of compliance in this area? The FCA has been checking to see whether firms' automated sanction screening tools are configured according to the government's consolidated sanctions list. Uh, the FCA is using a tool which we've written about, and I'll link to the article in the show notes. But this tool essentially uses a synthetic data to check whether firms' sanctions lists are up to date. It does look at, the FCA does look at the US, EU, and UN lists to 
too, but the tool is primarily focused on checking on the UK um, lists. The FCA has recently reported that it's found gaps in firm screening tools, which means they were not able to generate alerts against names on the UK list. And similarly to some of the issues with uh, AML transaction monitoring, um, the FCA has warned that firms need to make sure their systems are calibrated properly, often a problem with these AML monitoring systems. And it's also been an issue with um, screening for market abuse. Um, what the FCA says about sanctions monitoring is very similar to what it said about the market abuse systems and also KYC and uh, AML. You can't just plug in an off-the-shelf solution. Um, and the FCA in particular has called out firms over reliance on data providers um, lists for sanctions without checking whether these information, the information on these databases are tailored to the uh, firm's UK sanctions compliance requirements. And the Association of Certified Anti-Money Laundering Specialists, uh, otherwise known as ACAMS, has also uh, set out its own view of sanctions risk recently. Uh, what were its findings? Well, we've covered a lot of what ACAMS has been saying about sanctions, and we can link to some of uh, my colleague Brett Wolf's excellent coverage in the show notes. It's really must-read material for people doing sanctions compliance right now. But broadly, when it comes to Russia, Russian sanctions evasion, ACAM is describing risks like the use of complex ownership structures in real estate, trusts, hedge funds, private equity, as well as the use of third-party enablers to hide assets. The contrast with the simple checking against government-generated list is stark. Picking up on sanctions evasion isn't going to be that easy. And even if it is, a lot of firms aren't set up to detect it based on the lists. So ACAMS has spoken a lot about using trusts to hide assets and complex structures oligarchs use to achieve that. But it's also highlighted goods-based evasion as a way Russia and its network are keeping the war effort going as well as importing goods for consumption, particularly by wealthy individuals. ACAM has talked a lot about using complicated chains of shell and front companies to evade export controls so that the Russians can um, import dual-use goods, which are items that have a military and civilian use, as well as luxury items. Um, this is tough to detect and requires a lot more investigation and digging down into um, some of the beneficial owners behind shell companies and front companies, which, again, is a little more complicated than checking against a list. Um, because as we've covered previously, it's incredibly easy to start a new company. For companies are going to extreme lengths to get around some sanctions. Um, people will have seen the uh, 
media coverage of the lengths some companies go to to get around oil sanctions. I also read this morning that UK police believe rural farm equipment theft is being driven by Russian sanctions, that essentially people are stealing tractors and whatnot from farms and shipping them off to Russia. But I've heard about this stolen-to-order agricultural equipment crime before. And I mention it because it shows how varied the impact of sanctions is, or at least is perceived to be. And also it shows that bad actors are closer to home than people like to admit. Well, I mean, we're talking about sanctions risk and and, and Russia there for a minute. There's been quite a few headlines uh, recently about the activities of the notorious Wagner Group, the, the private army, which uh, is very active in Ukraine and other uh, war zones. What should firms be looking for here? Well, as you say, you know, how notorious a Wagner group, it's described as a mercenary group, private military, Kremlin proxy, and by the US and the UK and others, as a transnational criminal organization, and it's been sanctioned as such. It's also been accused of terrorism and war crimes. It's a big part of Russia's war effort in Ukraine. And it's been sanctioned in part for its role in the Ukraine, but also for its criminal activities that bring in assets for its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and the Russian state. It's linked to natural resources and mining companies in Africa, where it's able to make money from gold, diamonds, timber, that sort of thing. And firms who are worried about uh, Wagner exposure should be looking at where Wagner operates in Africa and other regions and the kinds of business it does there. Uh, Firms should be doing enhanced due diligence on transactions in countries where Wagner is known to operate and in the commodities in which it trades. And what about that other pariah state, Iran? What about the risks there? I just wanted to mention this uh, because, uh, again, uh, my colleague Brett Wolf has been reporting on Iran recently, and he wrote last week about the U.S. imposing counterterrorism sanctions on Iranian operatives it alleges were involved in assassination plots. So the U.S. was saying that Iranian individuals were seeking to assassinate some former U.S. uh, government officials. Again, we'll have the link to Brett's reporting in the show notes, but I wanted to highlight Iran to emphasize that sanctions isn't only about Russia. That's what it seems like these days. Um, There's so much going on in sanctions. It is truly a complex area that is evolving continuously. Like I said, I do worry that some of these other critical sanctions programs are being eclipsed by this overwhelming uh, focus on Russia. Okay. What about any sort of takeaways uh, for MLROs and compliance officers, just just to recap? Okay. Well, just to reemphasize what the FCA's message is, which is you need to take a look again at your sanction screening tools 
and make sure they're doing what they're supposed to be doing and that they're calibrated correctly. Don't rely on off-the-shelf settings that what you know we've called before and the FCA is called calling plug-and-play. Um, and you might want to do some due diligence on your data sources. Make sure they're up to date and reflect the fast-moving uh, world of, of sanctions. Uh, once that work's done, remember that sanctions risk management is more complicated than checking names against a list. Like ACAMS and others are, are have shown so thoroughly, it, sanctioned entities are adept at evasion, and this is the tricky part. Um, Wealthy Russians and uh, state sponsors use their personal and um, sovereign wealth to keep one step ahead of the U.S., U.K., E.U., and other sanctions regimes. So, you know, using the Wagner Group is, is a good example. Um, you need to do your homework and dive into some of the bene ultimate beneficial ownership issues when you're looking to detect uh, possible sanctions evasion in your company. Well, thanks, Rachel. Let's leave it there for today. Okay, thanks so much. That's it for this week's Compliance Clarified. Your feedback is important to us, so please give us a rating on your podcasting platform of choice, or you can get in touch directly. Our contact details are in the show notes. For more information about regulatory intelligence, please search for Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence or check the show notes for a link. Compliance Clarified, a podcast by Thomson Reuters Regulatory Intelligence.